You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. East Hollywood, California. As Dennis Boyce loaded the thirty-eight, he was so aware of its weight and coldness in his hands, it was like the gun had more gravitational pull than everything else in the room. He looked at the nickel-plated, snub-nosed pistol, and he looked around at the motel room, and he thought, Is this really the last thing I'm ever going to see? This bad autumnal landscape painting on the wall? These dust-coated curtains, the big painted metal door, the burnt sienna carpet? He could faintly hear a song being played out in the West Hollywood evening, a, a hip-hop song on someone's radio. song was Get My Wobble On. That was the last thing he was ever going to hear, Thud ka thud, thud ka thud, gotta get my wobble on. Wouldn't it be better at the beach, where in his last moments he'd gaze at the beautiful sea, smell and hear the ocean? But the idea of dying on the beach, where some kid might find his body, where crabs would march up and tear it to pieces, where seagulls would sup on his eyes, no. And he couldn't die at his mom's house, didn't want the old girl to find his body, that'd be a cruel thing to do to her, and God knows she deserved better. And he'd sold his car so he could leave his mom a little money, so he couldn't do it in a car. So it was like an alley or some place, uh, or this, a $60 a day motel half a block off Sunset Boulevard where hookers brought their tricks. The staff was used to cleaning up messes here. Probably uh, his wouldn't be the first suicide in this place. Part of the service, calling the cops, cleaning the blood up, betting so cheap they wouldn't care about having to throw away blood-soaked coverlets. And then again, he should die where it was appropriate, shouldn't he? Look at who he was, a 52-year-old failure. Where would a failure go to die? Where, more appropriately, but a room like this, really? He was a songwriter with one hit. Anyway, it it got to number 14 on Billboard, and two songs that had just charted. He'd been a radio DJ, and they'd fired him because he kept relapsing into dope and drinking and, and just not showing up. And then he'd gone to live with his mother for a while, just a recoup, uh, retrench, and it had turned into five years, then six years, now almost seven working in a succession of record stores. He had two half-finished movie scripts in a drawer and one lame novel about the music industry, rejected from about everywhere. He had a girl child, grown now, who wasn't interested in talking to him. He had an ex-wife who pitied him. He had those things. He had nothing. His dog had died a month before. He had enough severance pay to buy a gun from Paco and to rent this room. So to review, he thought, you have every reason to blow your brains out, you failure, you loser. He had known Leonard Cohen, who had recommended Zen, but Leonard was a legend. He had art, he had fans, he had a life, a daughter who loved him, and it was too late for Zen. Dennis had mostly concentrated on getting women between the ages of 18 and 30 to give themselves to him. That took up all his free time. So he was empty inside, and he knew it, nothing to keep him going. He didn't have success, didn't have meaning. He just had a room at his mom's house. It's just depression. I could take Prozac again, he thought. What was the point? So he could cheerfully live with his mom, cheerfully make less than a living wage, cheerfully accept being a failure. He never slept through the night anymore, and sometimes late at night he'd wake up and go to the window and look out from his mom's little cottage in the Hollywood Hills and see L.A.'s illuminated body the scintillations from the scales of the bloated anaconda. And he'd think, I'm so small, I'm so small. Dennis put the gun to his temple. And then he thought, hey, 
At least do it a little different. Have one last interesting experience. Why not try, he'd always wondered about this, why not try to see the bullet coming out of the gun right before it hit him in the forehead? Maybe he'd see it flying toward him. His perceptions would be heightened by the intensity of the moment. Time would slow a little. He might see the bullet coming at him. Well, probably not. But it was worth trying. He turned the revolver around so it was aimed at his forehead from about two feet away. He could just see the tip of the bullet in the snub-nosed barrel. In a moment, that shiny little projectile would fly into his head, and it would shatter all his memories, shatter his identity, because all those things were just constructions in his brain cells. He wouldn't exist except as a few blurry impressions in other people's minds, and those would be gone soon, too. Get it over with, man. Do one thing right. He stared at the tip of the bullet and squeezed the trigger. Goodbye, Dennis, he said aloud to himself. In the space of time, between cocking the hammer and its falling onto the firing pin, there came a multicolored presence in the room. And time did slow down, so that when the gun went off, he did see the bullet coming, impossibly slowly, drifting toward him like a space capsule with a long ways to go, yet before reaching the moon, a silver spinning bullet coming right at him. And long before the bullet got to him, it began to incandesce, like a match that's been struck. But there was no real flame. There was only light, rays of light emerging from the bullet, spreading across it until the bullet had become a packet of light. A bullet-shaped, shining compression of light filled his eyesight, filling all the world. The bullet did not exist anymore. In its place was a projectile made of information. Within the bullet of information was life, was a complexity of thought, memory, and intention flying toward Dennis's forehead. And just before it struck him, he heard someone say, You have surrendered your greatness to me. You have forfeited to me. You will be pushed into the next place, and I will make the equation closed and complete. The bullet of light struck his head, and he felt himself caught up and carried away through a tunnel of darkness into what might be non-existence and into what existence might be. Dead but undamaged, the body fell back, its heart ceasing to beat, and then the bullet of light exploded within his skull. Exploded not into destruction, but into construction. The body contracted once, then lay still. A moment passed, the time it takes to exhale a single breath. Then the body's heart twitched and began beating again. It was beating a little too fast, and this was noticed so that the one who'd taken it over caused the heart to slow down. Dennis's body sat up. The one now occupying Dennis's body consulted the memories that he'd chosen to keep within the brain. They were just a copy of what had been there, really. But they gave him a name and an address and a language. What more did he need? John Shirley's short story, Free Zone, was one of those included in Mirror Shades, the groundbreaking anthology that invented the cyberpunk genre of science fiction. As a musician, his work, Obsession, was released on the celluloid record label, the same record label that published Africa Bambata. As the principal writer for the movie The Crow, he helped to shape our perception of graphic novels adapted for the screen. His most recent novel is The Other End, an alternative take on the apocalypse, and his new short story collection is Living Shadows. Welcome to the program, John. Thanks. John, let's talk about your new short story collection. It collects some old stories and some new stories, and I think one of the most interesting uh, pieces in it is a piece called Blind Eye. Tell us a little bit about how that story came to be. Well, it's a collaboration with Edgar Allan Poe. Now, that's not very easily done. I believe uh, Mr. Poe has long since been I'm deceased. older than I look. <laughs> okay. Uh, 
No, unfortunately, as I said in the book, unfortunately, I'm as old as I look. But Blind Eye was actually instigated by an editor named Chris Conlon who found a fragment by Poe, uh, the beginning of a story. Where did he find this fragment? Do you know? In a university papers, Poe papers, I think. Really? Uh, somewhere, probably Baltimore, where they have a lot of Poe material because he lived there. Conlon, a bit of an expert on, on Poe, organized an anthology and got a bunch of writers to finish the story. And so I was one of them, and this is my, my take. I start with the Poe segment, and then I finish it my way. And I did it as closely as I could in Poe's voice. Uh, I was the only one other writer tried to do that. And I, I think it worked. The general reception has been that it seems fairly seamless. I turned it into a tale of the fantastic. And toward the end of it, this story about a man going crazy at a lighthouse and then having a supernatural experience out there and being mobbed. Toward the end of it, there's, there's a, a sort of appearance by uh, the guy who was the executor of Poe's estate who actually kind of hated him, a guy named Griswold. And I think that sort of wraps it up in an ironic kind of way. So if you know anything about Poe, uh, you probably enjoy the whole collection and the whole anthology. It's called Poe's Lighthouse. Tell us a little bit about how you researched the language for this story. Well, I reread a bunch of Poe. <laughs> That's sort of the simple way. And I'm a kind of sponge for um, other people's styles uh, when I need to be. I mean, I, I develop, I have my own style, but... I can pick up styles really easily. I just have an ear for it. It's like somebody who can play piano and, and, and they can play like Mose Allison a little bit or they can play like, you know, this famous pianist or that one. I, I, can, I can play like these people uh, in prose. And, and so I've always been able to do that. I've done it for Lovecraft and other people. I can write like Jack Vance, which is very difficult. Also, I, I read a Poe biography not long before. So I was kind of in a Poe vibe, so it was all kind of a, a lucky convergence. One of the things that struck me about this, and it has a, a lot of in common with your new novel, The Other End, in that there's a sort of what I would call a, a naked lunch vision of the world. If you recall William Burroughs, the, the idea of the naked lunch is when you see the whole thing just laid stripped right. bare, it's kind of scary. And, yeah. and there's that effect here. The character has that kind of vision of his own world. In Blind Eye? Yes. Yeah. It's true. He, he has a sort of magical lighthouse that sends a ray into the, the nearest village. The ray is sort of X-ray into people's moral lives and immoral lives. And he sees the, the, the village as a kind of tableau of, of immorality and, and dishonesty, and to which we usually turn a blind eye, right? And I do have a tendency to try and, and see the big picture. And, and I do try to kind of have a tendency to organize the imagery in, in, in books and, and short stories in a way that finds itself uh, in a sign of, sort of painting in the reader's mind. So influenced by Max Ernst and Salvador Dali as, as much as by any Ray Bradbury or, or William Burroughs or any particular writer, although, you know, those people were there for me. But I tend to see things that way in my head, and, and I sometimes get too caught up in trying to create the big picture. I mean, it's like I'm a, a Hieronymus Bosch painting or Bruegel, a lot like a Bruegel, where you're, you're painting a triptych and, and make, trying to make a big landscape and where it's all, nevertheless, you have all these details, but nevertheless, they're all interconnected, and it's one organic whole. Uh, that I, I have a tendency to do that, and so the the ideal is is to have that going on in the reader's mind, and at this and also complete involvement 
in the subjective viewpoints that they get caught up in the narrative. And that's it's hard to pull off, and sometimes I manage it better than other times. One of the things that struck me about this story is that the continuity between Poe and Lovecraft, and that you actually describe a character in this story as almost seeming like H.P. Lovecraft. There's an antiquarian, he's kind of interested in weird stuff, uh, is, and Poe, one thing, it really makes you think about the, the connection between those two, how much Lovecraft really took from Poe, which isn't something I always think about when I think about Lovecraft. I think that biographers of Lovecraft have really not looked at that enough. I, I think that if you look at Poe's poetry and pieces like The Haunted Palace and the poem that's in Lygia, you, you, you find Lovecraft's voice right there. It's, I think Lovecraft's voice is largely drawn from certain passages in Poe and Poe's poetry. As a result, uh, those echoes went on in other people who were imitating Lovecraft, like the early Robert Bloch and other weird tales writers and, and some modern horror writers. So we, we all owe a lot to Edgar Allan Poe, the unfortunate but brilliant Edgar Allan Poe, partly from that. And also, don't forget, he invented the mystery genre, or rather, it's more specifically, the detective genre. He created that. And uh, that's why the detective, the mystery writers, uh, of America's award is called the Edgar Allan Poe Award. And, and I'll just uh, say with a, a, l- a stunning lack of modesty that the critic Larry McCaffrey said that I was the postmodern Poe, which I can't resist mentioning because to me it has a very hip ring to it. Besides, we're talking about Poe, so that's my excuse. <laughs> so uh, if, you know, I, if I was going to get a, I don't like labels, but I like that one. I like the postmodern Poe. And speaking of Lovecraft, there's a, a fabulous Lovecraftian story in this new book, Living Shadows. It's called Buried in the Sky. Tell us a little bit about that story. What inspired it? I had seen somewhere shopping malls built into skyscrapers, into anyway high-rises, and self-contained high-rises. And, and Ballard wrote a, a high-rise, you know, and uh, he talked about the isolating effect of urban spaces and high-rise and concrete island and uh, so that's perhaps a little bit of an influence. But also just the, just the my own experience in these places. I have visited some of these places, and, and you feel like you are caught in somebody's little design fantasy, a rather two-dimensional, unimaginative designer. You're trapped in someone's lack of imagination when, when you go in, in, a, in a, a typical mall. And they're very self-enclosed, and they have a very trap-like feeling. And it's notorious that department stores and malls are organized so that you, you are less likely to go quickly to the exit, that you don't find it too easily. And they've taken the clocks out of them, so you don't notice that you're spending a long time shopping. And, and they try and, and shunt you uh, in this direction or that direction, sort of like animals in a chute in a slaughterhouse. It's not quite that bad, but it's, <laughs> you know, you get that feeling like you're being herded. And those kinds of feelings are being controlled by the, this sort of backdrop life of, of greed and commerciality and, and driven by it into tiny little spaces where you're then sort of squeezed <laughs> or milked in some sense. That was what I was trying to evoke, I guess, because Buried in the Sky is about a teenage 
girl going with her family to live in a high-rise in Southern California, and uh, they find that it's, it's, it's pervaded with a mysterious, supernatural, um, alienating influence, and it, it's, it becomes kind of malevolently surreal as time goes on. And, and it's connected also to uh, uh, events in her past because her mother was murdered by a, a psycho killer, and so it, that all dovetails at the end of the story. One of the things that, that I, I really liked about that story was the collision of the modern and the sterile and these kind of ancient Lovecraftian influences. It really, to me, summarized and once again re-evoked the, the power of, of Lovecraft's vision. And I think you take your, have your own very original spin on it, but I, I like this kind of idea of, of terror in an urban, sterile, well-lit setting. Well, sure, and uh, part of that is a kind of prophecy, and we've seen it in science fiction too. I mean, all the way back to old science fiction movies like Logan's Run, you had a feel like that sort of. We've seen it in in a Minority Report had that feel sometimes, and and uh, it, it's a very Phil Dickian sort of environment and setting. I, I uh, also was was uh, breaking up kind of Lovecraftian evil into more modern tropes and and in a way it's not sufficiently reverential to Lovecraft's way of doing things uh, at least some Lovecraftian <laughs> fa- uh, people some fans probably won't like the fact that the story is not really written in a Lovecraftian style it's not eldritch in its tone I think he would have liked that though I think that's he was trying to break away from what what had done come before and I think that's one of the things that I like that y- you take that to the next step I combine things. I, I make a fusion of um, Lovecraft's demonic being Yogg-Sothoth, which I, you know, directly drawing on for the story, and um, in modern um, horror or modern suspense writing, um, almost a kind of Kubrickian, Stanley Kubrick sort of uh, tang to it or, or atmosphere. It, it's really, really entertaining. It also takes us to your most recent novel, which is called The Other End. Now, this is a really fascinating novel. It's scary just in its conception. Uh, give, us, give us an idea of what your, your idea was when you went in to write this novel. Can I read from the author's note at the beginning? Oh, a little sure. Bit? That would be because great. Because it sums it up so well. I, I worked in this author's note uh, as much as anything in the book. <laughs> it was very. I had to. I had to put this very carefully. A certain pair of authors have published a series of best-selling novels about Judgment Day. Another one of those novels, by the way, is about to come out again. Uh, the the latest installment is about to come out. So. Uh, this is very. This is topical now. Written from the viewpoint of ultra-conservative, biblical literalist, end times Christians, drawing on a, a misguided interpretation of the revelation to John in the Bible, and suggesting that people not in alignment with the so-called values of the extreme right segment of the population will be punished by God. It strikes me that. If the landlord of this property we call Earth returns and discovers how we've treated it and how many of the better tenants have been treated, then he or she or something beyond gender may indeed wish to do some evicting and rebuilding. But a mythology cooked up in a narrow backwater of the world is unlikely to provide the blueprint for that day of judgment. Hence, alternative end times tales are called for. An alternative judgment day for the sake of balanced viewpoint at least. 
and in the hope of the beginning of a paradigm shift. This novel offers that alternative judgment day. The reader is warned that this is a novel with a clearly defined point of view. It's, it is unapologetically partisan. Uh, let novels of Christian apocalypse bloom, but this novel is written from the other end of the philosophical spectrum. It is for people who would prefer to imagine another end, a more just end. I cannot be alone in this. For a while, I thought the novel might have a subtitle, A Wistful Dream. But perhaps it's more than that. Perhaps it's a, a kind of existential protest and one that is much overdue. It feels like the time for it. Did you read the uh, LaHaye and Jenkins books before you wrote this book? I read enough, uh, and I read summaries, and, uh, you know, uh, you can hold them in your hands. And it's sort of, uh, a sort of, um, how can I put this, a... Uh, Cultural osmosis? Uh, no, um, a kind of uh, odor arises that you can inhale, <laughs> and you can get the, the sense of them from that. So I, you know, I just, I just picked up uh, on that, that feel. Uh, from, I read some of them. Some, I, I read a part, parts, large parts of two of them, and then I read summaries, and then I saw, uh, I think it was a TV movie based on one. And, uh, you know, it's a very simple-minded thing, not hard to get the idea. So tell us a little bit about how your vision of the apocalypse unfolds. Well, it's, it's in contrast to the Dominionist vision. The Left Behind books are an articulation of the Dominionist vision, which is another reason I didn't have to read all of them, because it's, they're just repeating and dramatizing the Dominionist idea. What is the Dominionist idea? Well, Dominionists are people who believe that the Judgment Day is coming pretty soon and that it'll emerge from a struggle between Gog and Magog and, uh, in Armageddon, uh, which is a place in the Middle East. They believe that it'll follow the ark, sort of, that is described in Revelation. But although the, the book of Revelation is, is very open to interpretation, and in fact, it was actually written about the Romans at the time. It was, it was really n nothing to do with our times. It was somebody at the time protesting in code about uh, the Roman emperor and, uh, and visualizing what they wanted to happen to them. That's what it was really about. So my version, in contrast to, to that, is a judgment day for all the rest of us. It, you could say that many aspects of it might be regarded as a judgment day as imagined by liberals. If you had the opportunity to design your own judgment day, what would it be? Uh, if, 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 you, if, if God came to you and said, I need a consultant, and, and can you tell me, because I are really, this is such a mess, how am I going to rearrange things? Who should I eliminate? How should I go about it? How would you uh, design it? And I feel that we should all be given access to that kind of thought experiment, let's say, in order to, to help create a paradigm for a changed world. And this is not about, you know, visualizing people exterminated, although in the book, in fact, some people are kind of blinked out of existence in a painless way. But that's not what it's about. It's really about visualizing a just world. And it comes from that impulse in myself, let's put it that way. I have in the book a metaphysical rationale that, a kind of a, a metaphysical system that emerges that I've created for the sake of this alternative judgment day, uh, draws on some mystical literature, draws on 
on certain personal experiences, draws on writers who, who have influenced me and, and thinkers who have influenced me, even some Christian thinkers like Origen, who was a sort of church father in the early days before the Council of Nigeria who believed in reincarnation, for example, and just to show you how much contrast there was in those days before um, the, you know, the, the big oppression of Gnostic thinkers and, and Neoplatonic thinking and so on. I draw on all these disparate influences and forge my own personal metaphysics for this judgment day. And it doesn't come from God per se. Uh, it's, it's not deist exactly. It, it acknowledges that there's a kind of background consciousness in the universe that tries to slowly, by degrees, organize the universe. In some books, I've called it the great organizer. And that looks for what they, in 12-step in groups, they call good orderly direction, G-O-D, right? And that uh, reaches out to, to find consciousnesses that are also moving in that direction and draw them to it and reduce suffering in the universe. I, uh, I like this idea that you talk about when you, in, in the opening of the book, you talk about seeing things in three dimensions, seeing you kind of pull back on the earth and we see it in three dimensions, then we see it in four across time, and then we see it in the fifth dimension which is the perception of consciousness. And in that, you can see suffering as a thing in itself. It has its own spectra that is actually visually witnessable and, and that emanates from the, the, uh, the world as you see it as a whole from, from a distance. And I was glad, too, to see the return of the I Amton, which I, I first encountered in your short story collection, Heat Seeker, so many years ago. So I was glad to see the I Amton come back. Yamton yeah, concept is also in uh, my novel, A Splendid Chaos. And it's, I did read somewhere uh, that some physicists believe that consciousness may be based on an actual particular particle. It may be a subatomic particle of consciousness. So I, I imagine very freely, you know, uh, what a, a, a collection of these particles might, might do, what properties they might have, and how you might isolate and organize them. And I've used that time and again. Because one of the great mysteries is what is consciousness. And I think that a lot of, a lot of New Age people play fast and loose with that concept. On the other hand, a lot of um, hardcore reductionistic physics people shrug it off and say that it's a purely mechanical process. And I think that's a grotesque simplification of something that's clearly a holographic process. It's very... It's uh, multidimensional. It it can't be just uh, mechanical. So uh, what is the missing part of the equation? It could be something like the I am, Ton. Your novel begins with a reporter from the Sacramento Bee witnessing something rather unusual. And we quickly move to another reporter who works for one of my favorite publications, the Fortean Times. Tell us a little bit about, are you a subscriber to the Fortean Times? I occasionally read it. I buy it if I see it on the newsstand, and, and I admire it. I admire the Fortean Times because it, it will report on anomalies. It will report on things that other people don't report on so much. The newspaper doesn't report on it uh, as much. And at the same time, it, it still retains skepticism. And it doesn't draw any wild conclusions. It simply reports on these things. And it may speculate a little, but usually not. So it does not assume that UFOs are 
alien spacecraft. It, it simply reports them if it gets a good, st solid UFO report. And it, it doesn't assume that Chupacabra exists just because there are reports of it, but it will report Chupacabra. And all of these things are very exciting and very uh, stimulating to the creativity. So I, I admire them. It's named after Charles Fort, who was a guy in the beginning of the 20th century, uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, collected anomalous information from newspapers uh, stored in libraries, places like that. And, and uh, he wrote a book called The Book of the Damned and then about how all this was damned information. And he was releasing it to us and, and speculating about it. Very influential guy. There's also a, a famous short story by C.M. Cornbluth, The Silly Season, that, that also em embraces these themes. Well, Cornbluth was brilliant. He he's he was often there before other people. Nobody's been where you've been in this book before, and I think one of the things that that was most interesting is this must have been a book that was kind of frightening to write, not just in its uh, uh, the ideas in it, but in the actual fact that you might be putting yourself in physical danger because you're completely refuting uh, the theology of people who are fairly assertive as to their beliefs. There was a review that just came out someplace online. I think it was Bookgasm, is there a place called Bookgasm? Uh, and, they, and they said it was courageous. I hadn't thought of that exactly that way, but I, I realized that I, I may get flack from people if the book becomes widely known. At least, I'm sure, uh, character assassination, <laughs> if not physical assassination. One of the things that, that is, is fascinating about this book is there's a lot of visionary imagery in it. And this is, you have a, a lot of this throughout your work. Um, and some of it seems to derive from stroke and epilepsy visions and brain malfunctions. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. I mean, have you ever had any of those kind of experiences? No, it's just that people sometimes have an experience that they think is supernatural and and, and uh, it turns out to be uh, something going wrong in their brain and if obviously if you start to lose oxygen you'll have hallucinations and you'll see a tunnel of light and so on at the same time uh, it's always intrigued me uh, that our brain while being a really useful powerful instrument could actually get in the way sometimes. We don't want to damage ourselves, but there might be a moment when something is a little bit broken and, and then through as, uh, as if you, you had a, a window that was slightly broken and it was like a dirty window or a screened, darkened window, and then it was broken and, and this light came through and you could put your eye to it and see something on the other side for a moment anyway. So there might be, you know, and also people often talk about death as being a uh, revealer, as death, uh, death as being a liberator, and that, that all things that we don't know in life will be revealed in death. Well, that's the ultimate dissolution of the brain. So that makes you wonder if a little bit of dis uh, dissolution sometimes uh, opens up a momentary window. Uh, maybe sometimes schizophrenics see things that are real mixed in with their hallucinations, and it's, ho it's hopeless um, to, to try and parse them out, but uh, possibly they might sometimes. There's a great a character uh, utters a really great phrase in here. I loved it. He says, I'm alive. I forgot. We are sleepwalking most of the time. That's one of my themes. I come back to it in a lot of my books. 
And in the short story, Sleepwalkers, included in here. Yeah, the short story, Sleepwalkers in, in Living Shadows. In that, book, in that story, literally, a, a person rents themselves out to sleepwalk, and they're put under with a certain drug and device that, that puts them into a kind of um, hypnotic state that is, you know, you don't look exactly like a zombie, but you, you follow directions mindlessly um, and look superficially like you're there so that you can then be a kind of a prostitute without suffering, you know, the, this, the uh, bad effects of being a prostitute or, or used in some other awful way and then, and then psychologically survive it. So that's a metaphor, obviously. For um, the way we tend to live our lives, we actually numb ourselves. We create buffers. We create zones of, of occlusion in our perceptions. We turn a blind eye, as in that other story, to our, our own lives, our own behaviors. We don't observe ourselves really honestly as we go through life. Uh, and this leads to more and more shutting down, as if we're shutting. We, we, we start out in a, a transparent building let's say, and, uh, but there's a lot of shutters that can be closed in it, and one by one, every year we close another shutter until eventually we shut down and we can only see out of one window. That's, that's uh, my perception of life um, as, it is, as we tend to live it. It's, and it's nothing shameful about it. It's a survival mechanism because life is tough. There are things I can't bear to contemplate in my own history and, and life, mistakes I've made and and, and, and terrible things that have happened. I've, I try to see them in another way, you know, so that I can incorporate them in, into myself. But it is difficult to live life really aware and to really feel yourself alive uh, as you go through it because if you do, you're at risk. If you live your life fully, you, you have to accept uh, the risk that goes with that. The great things come from it, but it's dangerous. It's dangerous to be aware. You have a lot of themes of addiction in this book and in throughout your work. Um, there's drugs, gambling, and pleasure. There's a there's a character in this book uh, who's the wife of uh, Linda Swift, who's the wife of the main reporter, and she's gone through a series of of uh, of shape shifting addictions uh, of from one thing to another, from religion to gambling to to um, business. Tell us a little bit about addiction, the part that plays in your work and maybe the part that it's played in your life. Well, I've struggled with addiction. It's part of human life. We are designed to some extent uh, to be addicts because uh, nature wants us to be addicted to things that feel good because um, staying warm feels good. Um, and so so you, you stay in the cave and you don't die of exposure. Uh, having a full belly feels good, so you live a little longer, so you can procreate. So, uh, nature has us sort of wired that way, but a lot of that wiring is very primitive and and uh, lends itself to addiction, and we're all prone to addiction. Uh, uh, some of us a little more than others, though. There is such a thing as as an addictiveness gene, and I think I probably have it because I've had I've struggled with addiction in my life. I uh, I've been addicted to uh, some drugs at some times, and and. And, and I've also been caught up in, in drug use that, while not addictive, was the behavior or the, no, the experience was sort of addictive. Um, recreational drug use um, is addictive even when it's not um, addictive in the physical sense. 
um, because it, you, you discover that a pill can suddenly make you feel different. Um, and and it's, it's, you know, it's obviously you're addicted to the escape of that. Uh, so I, I've, and partly it's my own experience, my struggle with it, uh, and I've succeeded. I've, I've stopped using drugs many years ago, but it left its mark in me. And partly it's um, observing it in the world. I, I just see addictiveness everywhere. Uh, maybe, you know, you could say, oh, you're an addict, and so you tend to see it. But uh, besides the fact that um, there's, uh, you know, a, around a million people in jail uh, for drug use in the United States and a lot more on the streets, uh, besides that, um, we see it uh, on the, if, if you've ever seen the Chopping Channel, uh, you know, the jewelry channel. If you've ever seen uh, the uh, home and garden somebody, channel, the home, yeah, you could become addicted to the oddest things. And uh, people are, are addicted. To, there are people who who go to twelve-step um, programs because they spend too much time on the internet. Um, there, there are porno, pornography addicts, and it's a porn addiction is a very serious thing. It really does screw some people's lives up. I'm not being blue-nosed about it, but it. I'm not saying it should be censored, but it, it but it's a, it does seriously addict some people. We're wired for addiction, and and um, it can be something that we can get some advantage from, sort of like a fulcrum and a lever effect. If 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 you know that you're prone to a certain kind of weakness, and you become aware of it, you can kind of use that to lever yourself into more growth as a person to offset that. Uh, you can l use it to lever yourself into more awareness because you, the struggle has this internal fruitfulness. Uh, it creates a special state uh, when you struggle with your own weaknesses in a conscious way. And it, you kind of grow spiritually. I don't have any way to prove that there's spirit and soul, but you, you at least grow in, in the Jungian sense of internal unification. Uh, that is something I try to point to in my stories, that, that addiction is not just this frightening enemy that we have to run for, from, but something to grapple with, something to recognize in ourselves, uh, something that, that we can grow in, in recognizing in ourselves. The other thing I really like about a lot of your work is you're one of the few writers that I read who talks honestly and and speaks well about the middle, lower class bordering on white trash, about to fall from white trash into homelessness, uh, economic lifestyle. It, tell me why you write about those people. Well, I try to write about people who don't get written about that much. I, American literate writer, uh, people uh, tend to write about the middle class, and, and it's good. Uh, Raymond Carver writes brilliantly about them and, and Cheever and people like that, and, and sometimes about the upper classes. And a few people write about uh, people who, who are you know, struggling to, be, to find themselves in, in uh, the lower fringe of, of the economic world, you know, a few people really explore that very honestly. And when they do, they're kind of famous for it. Like people like Runyon and, and um, Hubert Selby, for example, you know, uh, they, they stand out for doing it. Uh, it just shows how little it's explored. Steinbeck did, a, did it, um, and I admire that. And I, I want to tell those stories. Uh, and I have also some 
kind of uh, one foot in, one foot out of that life. Uh, I, you know, as as a person who struggled with addiction, I was around a lot of people who were very economically marginal and marginalized and marginal and and impoverished people. And I grew up in a somewhere like just outside the trailer park. Let's say <laughs> we were pretty poor, but we we were not we were not quite at that level. But I was I was right in between. Uh, and um, a lot of my friends were what other people would call white trash, I guess. But me, the, to me, they were just people struggling to find some kind of bearable identity. The alternative apocalypse that you describe in The Other End is, is really a fascinating concept. And, and it, one of the ways it's described as, is as an epidemic of justice. Now, I'm wondering if and this results in people doing truly good deeds, which tend to screw up the way things work now, which is based on a lot of underhanded uh, dealings. So I'm wondering if there were any good deeds that you saw that maybe inspired you to to imagine this epidemic of justice. Yeah, sure. Um, I have seen people change uh, within themselves and this book is about internal change changing the world. Is one of the main transformative factors described in the book is a, uh, a change in consciousness. So that they simply have more perception and it's an objective perception. It's, they, are, they are capable of, of more empathy because they have more perception. Um, parts of themselves that were numb wake up a little bit and then they see things as they really are. They're capable of, of empathizing with other people's suffering. So, the, you know, that, that is like uh, something apocalyptic in the book, uh, ironically. Uh, it transforms society. And then there's, a, there's another stage later that's more extreme and more unusual. Uh, but that wasn't partly inspired by observing that, that people uh, can change internally and change directions. It doesn't happen that much. People tend to do the same things over and over again. We tend to be sleepwalkers, and we tend to walk in the same patterns, and we tend to be satisfied with our, the maze that we have been introduced in, into uh, to get to the cocaine or the, uh, or the sweetened mash at the other side of the maze. <laughs> we tend to be satisfied with that, but not everybody uh, does some people turn back and, and snap at the hand of the guy who introduced them to the maze and escape? Uh, some people climb out. You know there there are ways. Uh, there was an award given recently to a, a guy in San Francisco, and I, I wish I could remember his name. I don't know him personally, but he um, was uh, a former drug addict. A lot of years as a drug addict, went to jail and uh, had a kind of change of consciousness there, partly as a result of the 12-step work uh, and, and prayer and meditation, and came out, and, and he's gotten an award for uh, some years of working with the public, helping addicts uh, get back into the mainstream of society and, and uh, helping people find uh, a way to, to get off the streets, a living wage, uh, counseling families and so on. This guy so went from being part of the problem uh, to part of the solution. There also, uh, in there was there's a guy who who ran a uh, a big uh, rug weaving company. I wish I had his name, uh, but he 
had a sort of in, in environmental uh, vision one day and realized that his company was causing a lot of problems. They were dumping dyes. Uh, they were uh, uh, using materials that are, were problematic. So he had a 180-degree turnaround and, and changed his, his uh, company's way of doing things from the top down. He has become a, a sort of icon of the greening people. Uh, th- those people are out there. Um, I, I think I've seen Bill Gates change, <laughs> and he's become less selfish over the past 10 years. Uh, maybe his wife's influence, I don't know. But uh, you know, those, those things are inspiring. One thing that I found really interesting is that the way that your rapture, so to speak, creates these actual good deeds, which are really disruptive to to the way things are. I mean, when and this evinces itself when a lot of uh, people start ratting on their bosses about corporate misdeeds. Uh, people, you know, suddenly when they wake up a little bit, they turn around uh, and 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 they're startled by by where they find themselves. How did I get to this corner of the maze? How did I uh, happen to be sitting in this mall at this time? How did I end up in this job working for these people? There was an article in The New Yorker recently about Democrats who have gone to work for Walmart, and Democratic political operatives uh, who have been recruited by Walmart to sort of reach out to, to Democrats and, and uh, people with green concerns. I believe that someday these guys are going to sit up and look around and go, wait, how did I end up here working for Walmart? They, I think they, they got too concerned for their careers, and uh, it's, you know, it's not like they were going to starve. And they took these jobs because of big paychecks were waved in front of them. And you, you, you find yourself waking up and looking around. That's the first thing you do when you wake up a little bit. Not that I'm thoroughly awake, but I've had the experience. And the first thing you do is look around and, and you're startled by what you see. So then you, 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 you realize you're part in it. And since you're a little more awake, your conscience is awake too. And then that directs you to do something about your part in it. Now, have you seen any reactions from the Christian right about this book? It's just started uh, being out there. It's just started getting reviews. It's, I don't think they're aware of it. Um, we may anticipate some. If it, if it becomes a popular book, uh, they'll certainly repudiate it. They'll, you know, anything that challenges their worldview, they repudiate as diabolic. One of the things I found really interesting about this book was the second phase you talk about. It, it's like an invasion. In fact, the the whole book really is, to, in a, to a certain sense, it's an invasion from the world of platonic ideals. Well, yeah, that's a pretty good description. Not to get too slanted into recycling old philosophical ideas, but there, there's a certain Platonism going on. Um, one of the things about uh, Platonism is this idea of the absolute and of the uh, kind of accretion of the universe as a whole, the, the great unified mass of things uh, as, as being a conscious entity in itself. And f- from there, issues theoretically some kind of guidelines for being. And these may be the Platonic ideas and so on. Uh, but also from their issues, uh, according to this theory, um, at least this is the theory that I'm going on in the book, and I'm not, I'm not grinding any particular theological or philosophical acts that, uh, that is like 
what I believe out of firm, absolute conviction in this novel. I, I'm, it's, it's all a kind of um, working hypothesis. Thought experiment. Uh, it's a thought experiment. Um, I, I think something of the sort may be going on, but I don't know. It's just that it's a, it's a vibrant alternative to what's there. Um, that's, that's what I was really doing and drawing on some lively streams of, of spiritual ideas like from Meister Eckhart, people like that. One thing that I, I really liked about this book is, and, and we've seen this in other works too, is that anybody who is, is perceived as somehow inimical to the status quo can quite easily be said, labeled as terrorist. It could happen. It could happen. There was just an article uh, uh, kind of obscurely published. It's one of those things that, that hasn't gotten enough publicity. There's been good documentation that just emerged that the, that, uh, the FBI has, has been interrogating American protesters. And, and American protesters have been saying this for a while, but this is, is more documentation that, that backs them up. Uh, American uh, protesters, uh, anti-war protesters in Washington recently um, were taken into a parking garage and um, isolated there and asked questions about their political orientation and about their religion. The FBI asked them what religion they were, perhaps, you know, trying to connect them to Muslim terrorists. Really? Yeah, that, and uh, these guys were just people carrying signs. Boy, that's oh, yeah. It's scary. Also, and that's kind of like a continuity from uh, the '60s and '70s. There was that kind of of uh, political mechanism, uh, black political mechanism, going on in Coental Pro or uh, programs like that uh, were going on, and and they have never quite gone away. Uh, where they're targeting these groups in a very direct way, and sometimes with infiltrators. There, there are um, uh, operatives uh, who are introduced into groups like this. I recently, um, I think it was in Portland, uh, protesters were some, wearing a black mask were seen uh, burning up images of American soldiers in effigy. And the other protesters were puzzled and said, who are these guys? Well, uh, they're wearing masks. Uh, do you know them? No, I don't know them. Do you know them? No. Uh, were they at your meeting? Nobody talked about burning American soldiers in effigy. Uh, and the probability is that they are uh, plants from a Coental Pro type FBI program. And uh, I think these things, you know, I, it's I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I don't think that's conspiracy theory because it's history. We have a history of it in America. I mean, Senator Church discussed this kind of thing openly in Congress, and it came out in Congress that this kind of thing happened. It, it's, it's been part of policy in some ways, so it's, it's not that, it's not like an, a, a conspiracy theory. It's, it's um, something that's going on. And so if they'll go that far, coming back to your uh, remark, if they'll go that far, how soon before uh, they start targeting authors who are um, politically inimical to the administration's point of view in some way, um, maybe harassing them or something? If the book became popular enough, uh, maybe they might because, uh, you know, the president is, is parodied in the book and Cheney and people, I don't say their names directly, and friends of theirs and the people who, who put them in, in office uh, are, are satirized. So, 
you know, I they and also I have uh, uh, at johnshirley.net I have something called Edge Trends where um, you know I have a pretty I have a pretty astringent let's say kind of blog going on and, and they might be aware of it. it it gets a fair amount of following that's what that brings up one that you talked about parody one of the things that makes this book really enjoyable is the satire and your your sense of humor and I, I love the idea of chocolate flavored cigarettes and the the light cigarette packs with lighters um uh, it's just extrapolating a little uh it's there are chocolate cigarettes, except they don't have tobacco in them yet. <laughs> there, uh, you know, I used to eat them when I was a kid. They've been the, to, the cigarette companies find different ways to suck people in, and there's that. Uh, and there are there are liquors that that are practically soda pops now, uh, increasingly, and I think they're targeted at young people, and and that it just goes back to corporate. Um, irresponsibility and the whole mindset that they have. And that kind of thing is satirized in, in the other end and on many different levels. Let's talk a little bit about your work in the movies. Um, you wrote the screenplay to The Crow, and when last we spoke, you were working on something with Jim Cameron? There was a, a plan to do a documentary film about uh, ships sunken under the Great Lakes, there are more than a thousand fairly intact ships sunken in the Great Lakes. Um, there's talk of it, and it keeps starting to coalesce and then falling apart as a project. And then Cameron got uh, the go-ahead to do his new movie, um, so that ended that for right there. But we hope it may happen at some point. He he did offer to you to lend some uh, robot cameras that would swim down and and observe these wrecks up close so they didn't have to be disturbed much. You can see skeletons down there from 1812. Because of the nature of the, t the chemistry of the water, uh, there are still intact skeletons like you wouldn't see in the ocean. You've done a, a lot of work as a musician. You started out back in the 70s and 80s as a post-punk uh, musician with your own band. Obset was Obsession your first band? Tell us a little bit about your Sato Nation. Was I was the lead singer of Sato Nation in Portland, um, and then uh, I moved to uh, New York and and started Obsession, which was on the Celluloid Records label. That's the one with you know other bands like Soft Cell were on that, and Africa Bombata and uh, Material. Uh, let's hear this uh, song from uh, uh, Obsession. It's a, a cyberpunk song.
We just heard Electricity by John Shirley. John, tell us a little bit about recording that song. What year was it? It was in the mid-'80s. I have to confess that uh, the song was inspired by an acid trip that I'd taken like seven years earlier and then wrote the the lyrics out um, shortly after that. On this acid trip, uh, on on LSD, I seemed to perceive... um, the electricity in my own mind. You know, your brain does, in fact, use electricity. It's, it's a, an electrochemical battery in a way, your brain. And uh, I seem to perceive it communicating with the electrical glow and the, and the lights and that sort of thing. Uh, fanciful, I'm sure. But then I started thinking about all the electricity running through um, amplifiers and, and uh, uh, stereos and while listening to music and um, and through all the machines of the world and, and how um, that electricity was like the electricity in our bodies and, and the, how those things sort of commingled and uh, it seemed to be it's, it's, uh, that there was a, something about electricity uh, that, that was uh, our connection to the great mind somewhere. Uh, it's an acid sort of impression, I'm sure. I, I'm, I, I don't know how meaningful it was, but... There is something that, that fascinates me about about the connection by, between the fact that we are have electrical bodies, the body electric, and you know you static electric charge builds up on, in us. You feel it all the time in different circumstances, and our brains use it. Uh, that's a that's a biological fact, and that there's electricity in machines. Um, so, something about that uh, seems to uh, hint at, at a, a cosmic connection somewhere. Now, you played in uh, uh, New York, and then you came to the Bay Area? I played uh, in New York for several years, and then I went to uh, Paris and played uh, around Paris and Amsterdam a little bit. And these songs uh, from the Obsession album were played um, on radio in Europe. I didn't, you know, didn't, uh, wasn't a huge success, but uh, there was some recognition there. I was interviewed in radio stations and so forth, and uh, they got minimal airplay over here. And then I got discouraged, and my family life was sort of falling apart, and uh, I had a divorce and ended up uh, moving to back to New York and then eventually to California. I'm originally from the, the Pacific Northwest, but... Uh, I, I keep, something of a some vortex in California keeps drawing me back there. Partly, I was uh, uh, heading to Hollywood. Tell us a little bit about the Mobuhe Club and the new music label. Well, um, when I was living in the Pacific Northwest in the late '70s and at the beginning of the 1980s, um, we had a uh, very little punk scene in Portland, and uh, and um, and those of us who were into punk rock music, a new wave music, alternative music, uh, were in search of it. So sometimes uh, we went so far as to hitchhike to San Francisco just so we could hear it live down down there. And the place to hear it was the Mubuhe Club. Um, it was um, it called that because it, originally it had a Hawaiian theme, and then somebody bought it and turned it into a rock nightclub, and, and punk acts played there principally. And, and it was the the West Coast sort of locus of of the punk scene until uh, the Seattle thing happened. Uh, and there was another place called the Deaf Deaf Club D E A F, where deaf people actually danced to, to punk rock bands alongside us. Um, 
because it, it was a, a place where deaf people went to, for different things, and they let us have concerts there. So that was also in San Francisco. Those, and the interesting that, uh, thing about the deaf club is that the, the deaf people who couldn't hear at all were able to dance to punk rock because it was so loud they could feel it, and they could feel, they could feel the beat. So they would be out there on the dance floor uh, pogoing with us, and, and it was a great experience for them. It was very interesting to me to observe that. I, I, I never forgot the uh, physicality of music and, and, and have written about it many times. Uh, at the Mobue Club, I had bands like uh, The Avengers and The Nuns, Crime, uh, classic West Coast punk bands, uh, and then all that sort of slowly dissolved. The Mabuhe is held in reverence by people into alternative culture in San Francisco, and uh, recently the guy who started it uh, passed away, and uh, there was some publicity about that. So Ted Oliphant, who uh, was a sound man at the Mabuhe sometimes and had a, had a lot of connection with it, he used to be there. My wife, Mickey, also used to go to the Mabuhe um, back before I knew her. She was probably there in the audience dancing near me and, and when I went down and visited and I didn't know it. Ted Oliphant started Mabuhe Records, um, and I think it's MabuheRecords.com now, and uh, he's organized uh, a lot of these old bands to re-release their material, and um, he's also putting out the Panther Moderns CD, which is my my uh, California band that I did with John Carr and Mike Derry, uh, basically a studio band, and uh, it was a post-post-punk band, transitional thing between post, uh, between uh, punk rock and and progressive rock, and uh, bands like King Crimson were an influence as well, and Frank Zappa's stuff, uh, as well as uh, uh, bands like the Sex Pistols. So the Mubuhe Records is outfit is re-releasing the Panther Moderns album Red Star, featuring my vocals and John Carr's uh, musical stylings. Let's listen to Panther Pit, which I believe plays as the backdrop when we go to the Mubuhe. It did last I, I checked. heard the panther pit by john shirley and the panther moderns john tell us a little bit about what how you recorded this album we recorded it um in a you know a regular old old uh, studio in john carr's own studio because he's a sound engineer and uh you know would typically they would put i would come up with uh 
uh, lyrics and uh, just a general vocal melody, and uh, John would listen to it and then create music to go with it. Once in a while, I hear the music first. And uh, and then they would spend enormous amounts of time layering in tracks. He he layers in lots of tracks, all different kinds of things. Uh, he was one of the first guys to actively use samples. Um, that you'll hear it in that record if you get it. He did samples um, that are of a of a kind that people are using now way in advance, as well as a lot of ro uh, really interesting Zappa esque rock guitar. Great stuff, but the trouble is they spent so much time on that, we had no time left afterward for my vocals, so everything had to be done pretty much in one take. And that's been my experience with rock musicians for, uh, for many years. Oh, yeah, the vocalist. Well, we've got five minutes left. Um, but it came out pretty good anyway. It, tell us a little bit about your work with Blue Oyster Cult. I wrote um, most of the lyrics for most of the songs and their most recent two albums. Um, the albums are called uh, Heaven Forbid and uh, Curse of the Hidden Mirror. Both Blue Oyster Cold albums are on iTunes. And uh, they're, they're good. They're good. They, were, they, got, they got some airplay, these songs. Uh, they had singles released. One called Pocket got some, some airplay. But they don't contain any of their great hits like um, their famous songs like Don't Fear the Reaper. It is, they're very, very good, uh, solid um, Blue Oyster Cult songs. These guys are, are not just some heavy metal band. They're the thinking man's hard rock band. How did they hook up with you? Did they call you? I had written a novel called Transmaniacon, and the title is, is taken from one of their songs. Transmaniacon MC. Yeah, and that's from their first album, and they, they were aware of it. And then um, Mutual Friends... Um, knew they were looking for a lyricist, and they knew that I wrote lyrics, and they knew about the books, so they asked me if I wanted to do it, and they checked with the BOC, and, and the BOC said, yeah, let's check it out. And I, I wrote them a big raft of lyrics, just a big pile, and I, and I didn't hear anything from them. And I thought, oh, well, okay, they passed on it. They're not going to do it. And then all of a sudden, I got this CD in the mail. Uh, and they, oh, they did do it. And in fact, I had recorded one of the songs... Um, one of those lyrics with my own music uh, on my Red Star album, a song, a song called uh, I Like to See You in Black because uh, it, it makes me uh, feel like your husband's dead. <laughs> and they recorded that too in a completely different speed metal sort of way. Are we going to be able to see you play live soon? In San Francisco at some point, but with a different band. I'm starting a band called the Screaming Geezers. <laughs> because I'm, I'm a bit of a geezer now. And, uh, and I want to make a point. I want to prove that, that uh, geezer rockers um, can really rock, and the Rolling Stones aren't the only ones. There are people you know, out there who are capable of breaking the uh, mold. To me, you know, there's this big... It's kind of a steel mesh fence between older uh, rockers and and uh, the music industry, unless they're very established. And even if they are very established, some oftentimes they can't get great songs on the radio just because they're uh, a very well-known band from an earlier era. The Blue Oyster Cult is an example. They, I believe, a lot of our singles would have been uh, FM radio hits if the Blue Oyster Cult were a new band. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to try and break the rules and prove that, that older rockers can, can break in. It's not going to be my main vocation, but I'm going to put some serious energy into it, and I've got some great musicians. 
That sounds great. Have you guys considered uh, using getting some teenagers to front for you? Uh, well, uh, part of the concept is that older rockers um, are better. And, um, uh, you know, I, I resist doing that. But uh, we, I, may, I think we may get, it may be a good idea to get a, uh, a younger uh, drummer. Because uh, you need, dr- drummers has to be very vigorous. And, and older drummers are, are, have usually died. You know, if you've ever seen Spinal Tap, you know that they, they, don't, they don't make it very far, you know. They found they found them in a hotel room, you know, face down in the carpet usually. So we may have to use a young one for the drummer. We've been speaking with John Shirley. His latest novel is The Other End. His new collection of stories is Living Shadows. Thank you for joining me, John. Thank you. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.